Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I begin by acknowledging that we broadcast on the unceded stolen lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay deep respects to Elders past and present and extend that to any First Nations people that may be tuning in this afternoon. It was, is and always will be Aboriginal land. August marks the first ever National Poetry Month here in Australia and there are some really wonderful events and initiatives that are popping up um, throughout the month of August to celebrate all things poetry and here in the Glass House we're going to be celebrating together uh, because my first guest that will be joined by today will be Uncle Tony Birch. Uh, household name, um, I'm sure, is coming on to speak about his new poetry collection called Whisper Songs. And this new collection kind of spans themes of of loss, both of people and place, um, of legacies of colonial history and violence, and also relationships between country and memory. That one is out through the University of Queensland Press. And a little bit later in the show, I'll be joined by Sydney-based writer Tilly Lawless to speak about her new novel, Nothing But My Body. Uh, It is a book which follows the story of a young queer sex worker in Australia uh, and beyond. It's kind of set in a few different places. Um, It travels with her across eight days across a year and really navigates questions of of love, of work, of infatuation and of labour and I'm very much looking forward to chatting with Tilly about this great book. I hope you can stay with me for the next hour. Tony Birch is a household name when it comes to storytelling in this country. His writing has seen him win numerous awards, most recently for best-selling novel The White Girl. He's also an activist, a historian and essayist. Tony Birch has written a new collection of poetry called Whisper Songs, which spans a radical reinterpretation of archival histories all the way through to childhood memories of growing up in the inner city Melbourne alongside his younger brother, for whom this collection is dedicated. It's an immense privilege to speak with Uncle Tony Birch today. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Tony, did you want to start by reading a poem? I will start by reading a poem, and I had thought of another poem, but then when you just talked about the Briggs song with Thelma Plum on it, I'll read a poem called Waiting for a Train with Thelma Plum. Um, Yeah. Penrith Station sits broken, the grieving heart in pieces, the platform a way station for essential workers living dead days of isolation. We have little time for each other, envying those slumbering at home, flannelette pyjama sleepings, raisin toast and hot milo, lazily fucking the days away to Netflix and Zoom peering on. 
We slouch, beaten, except for the girl in black, a kiss of life in black boots, black jeans and hoodie, black, red, yellow flag on her back, headphones soon to pounce. She moves, raises an arm, clenches a fist. Hey, hey, fuck that. It's Tony Birch there reading Waiting for a Train with Thelma Plum from his brand new poetry collection. Thank you so much for sharing that. Tony, some readers may know you more intimately for your fiction writing. You're obviously also a poet as well. You've written poetry collections before. I'm interested, can you tell me a bit about your poetry practice? How do you see it fitting into your writing practice as a whole? Uh, it's probably the difference is that I, I offer... I obviously don't write as much poetry, but when I do, I, I write it in what I would think of both fairly intense emotional and creative periods. And I think that when I decide to address issues of interest or concern with poetry, it's because I do want the immediacy of economy so that, you know, clearly you know, one of the things about poem, there, there's less ink on the page. <laughs> um, and I do like the idea of, of poetry, for me, being an exercise and being able to have a very um, intimate and, I think, immediate re- re- relationship with people. Um, and it's the way that I've all my work's been. That, you know, I, I've, I've obviously po- I've written novels. Um, I've also worked with short fiction and non-fiction, you know, where it be academic writing and other stuff. And um, I've just always felt that, yeah, what I want to do is communicate ideas and politics and sometimes one form or yeah, different forms work better than others. And in this sense, um, I, it was during lockdown last year that the way I wanted to respond to key issues like my brother's death, mm. issues around racism and issues around environmental and degradation and, and destruction of country were that a book of poetry were the best ways to, to deal with that. Mm. I'd love to talk a little bit about that. You know, you do open the book with a dedication to your younger brother, Wayne, and, you know, the, the the following poems kind of really trace some personal histories of yours and his and, you know, your experience of, of growing up together. I'm interested, did that intention to dedicate the book to Wayne come before you started writing or, or how did it inform this collection? Well, certainly the idea to dedicate didn't come beforehand because I, I wasn't thinking of a book initially. I probably had gone through this. So this is my brother's death about two years ago now, and it was very sudden, um, very unexpected, and, and, and very difficult for the family to deal with. And I, I started to write quite a lot about um, him, particularly as a child, and I've also, I mean, coincidentally have a new book of fiction that um, stories that came out yesterday, I think, or today, I'm not sure. But I, I, I wrote several short stories about him as well, and I was actually quite concerned about it because I was driven to write about him, but I was also very concerned that, I mean, it sounds a bit dramatic, but I didn't want to turn my brother's death or our family grief into, you know, sort of creativity or art. Mm. So I, I I showed the works to my mum and we had to talk about it and she was really actually quite pleased that I'd done so because my younger brother had been a quite a, a charismatic and, I mean, quite gorgeous-looking um, kid, a remarkably vivacious child who then suffered, you know, many, many years of... of psychiatric illness in later life. So she felt that it was really important for people to to know him in a way that, yeah, people who knew he was that old didn't know him. So, yeah. so 
I started to write about him, but I think that yeah, the issue last year in lockdown, you know, as people know, we were trapped in this five-kilometre zone with a curfew. I began to take a lot of daily walks within that five-kilometre, and luckily, because I live in the inner city and we'd always lived in, in Melbourne, I, I found myself tracing experiences of childhood with him yeah, around Fitzroy and Collingwood and certainly um, down along the river. And so that I found that I started to write poems about a combination of issues which included our childhood experience of the river and, and Fitzroy in particular, but also the work that I had already been doing around um, ecological issues. So there's a lot of water, water poems in there. So while I'm down the river thinking of my brother, I was always also thinking about the incredible dynamic of the river and the, the sustenance that you get from the river and from country and a really strong urge to write about the need to... to to protect the river. Mm. Yeah, as you said, this book is structured in three sections. It goes through blood, skin and water. It's almost, uh, it feels like a direction from the deeply personal, um, the physical, the physically personal to kind of the external world where you are talking about kind of waterways that surround you. But then there's also this deep sense that there is no separation and they're all intrinsically interlinked. Can you tell me about, I suppose, the decision to um, to structure the book this way and, and how they relate to each other. Yeah, and I, I mean you've hit on something really important. Although that they're in those three sections, yeah. I mean, occasionally with the poems in in each section, you, you could say, well, why, why, why isn't it in the other section? Yeah, a, a poem in skin could be in a poem um, in the blood section, but really it was. Um, I think the distinctions, but they collapse as you you have just talked about, is that. Really, there were poems which I would call you know, family poems, so deeply about family. There are poems which are relative and sometimes about family, but really about a wider issue of racism against Aboriginal people in Victoria and Australia, issues of colonial violence, issues of of memory, um, you know, Indigenous memory, colonial memory. And then the third section, which are the water poems, are really about ecology, essentially, essentially, and um, protection of country, although there are other dynamics in there. So uh, um, one of the poems, I think the title is Desecrate. It's about the fact that these places like water streams that you know, kids love to play in. It's about a story of an Aboriginal as a child who was actually stolen from his family from a, from a stream. Yeah, he was playing in the water with his other um, blackfellow mates and the welfare authorities came in and took him out. And that sense, I, when I write that poem as desecrated, I see it as both a desecration of this person's life and of his Aboriginal family, but it is a desecration and violence against country as well. But the fact that colonial authorities would enact this violence towards Aboriginal children on country is also violence against country. Mm. And in my biggest scheme of things, and yeah, what I used to write as an academic, I, you know, I don't see any... I, I see an absolute connection between violence against um, Indigenous people and violence against land. I think that they, 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 they're simply 
hand in hand as, as destructive practices. Mm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Tony Birch all about his brand new poetry collection, Whisper Songs. Tony, I'd love to pick up on something that you were just talking about, about that, I suppose, the violence done to country and the myths, I suppose, about um, this memory that we have about this country. You, you described it as a colonial memory. Um, I think what you've done in this collection, you, you really spoke to the archive in a really interesting way and you know as we know mainstream history keeping in this country is often told from the perspective of the coloniser and this book really resists these gaps in record keeping and kind of speaks back to the archive of of what's left out or misrepresented in archival documents you know you do this through the story of Buddha Khan can you tell me a little bit about Buddha Khan and and who he is? Yes I just to backtrack just a little bit, I've been doing the archival work for a long time. So um, I did a series of works called Archive Box, I reckon, about 15 years ago, and, and they were published um, independently, although I think I republished a couple of them in, in an earlier book. And the reason I did that is I, I, at the time, had been working as I was teaching Aboriginal history at Melbourne Uni, and I was involved in this debacle that people might remember as the History Wars, and I just discovered really quickly that it was a futile discussion to have with, you know, ignorant people, mm. and that my my interests were more served by doing creative work around history and also doing a lot of collaborative work with younger people, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. And the archive work was, as you just said, to sort of look between the sort of hidden creases and crevices of archive boxes and, and get those um, stories told in a different way or, or in, in a sense, to get the archive to speak more more honestly, um, not hide behind the sort of bureaucratic language is the work I did. But the Buddha Khan poem is, is really personal. It's um, The work is based on an immigration file and that immigration file is the file of my... Um, great-grandfather by marriage, a man called Buta Khan, who married my great-grandmother. And he was a man who came to what was in the colony of Victoria in the 1890s, so before the Australian nation was formed. And when he wanted to take my great-grandmother and my great-aunts and uncles back to the Punjab to meet their family there um, in the 19... During, well, several times, but starting during the First World War and later, so those documents, are, I think, from 1916, he had to get an exemption certificate which would allow him to travel and return to Australia without being refused re-entry. And the point of the poem and the point of the archives is that what I would consider the extent of humiliation he had to suffer mm-hmm. to be allowed back into a country that was younger than him. Yeah, the Australian nation is younger than Buta, and he had to get references from police. He had to write really um, letters of deference. And he was a remarkable man. He he, he was a devout um, Muslim man. So he was a non-drinker, non-smoker, never been in trouble with the police, really. You know, in any other way, what people might call an upstanding citizen, but he, he was literally treated as a second class or, or non-citizen for, for most of his life in Australia. And he had to suffer this humiliation pretty much in silence until his death. Mm. Tony, I'm interested when you are writing about these histories or reimagining them in, in the way that you're kind of adding to an archive of what hasn't been there before, uh, you know, you are writing about these kind of collective histories of, of this country and 
and kind of what's happened. But, you know, they also are, as you've mentioned, like quite deeply personal histories of your family. I'm interested in, I suppose, what are the personal costs or ramifications of, of, of doing this kind of work? Um, look, at a personal level for myself, I don't see it as a cost. In other words, I, mm. I, I think it's a job or a something I, I, I want to do. Um, I want to be able to speak on behalf of people in my family who have passed. I think there is a there is a really strong issue of responsibility. So these poems that involve family members have to be discussed with family members. So there are literally protocols that I would go for. I wouldn't think I had sort of... Yeah, I don't believe in our artistic licence. Yeah, when writers... Mm-hmm. You know, who feel they're being censored or cancelled these days talk about, you know, their art is being censored. I, I think that's rubbish. I think, you know, there are times when we shouldn't write about certain issues and we should understand why we shouldn't do it and, in fact, accept that there's value in not writing about certain things, so that's important. But I think you do hit on something else, that when I work as a historian, I was looking at the archives to write academic work and trying to write essays that was trying to say to white Australia, this history of violence, this is your history, you need to own it, you need to stop ignoring it, stop forgetting it, and stop us having to be, you know, the, we carry the burden of your amnesia. Mm. Um, when I was reading archival documents which horrifically describe the murder of Aboriginal people, and these are documents, by the way, produced by by non-Aboriginal people, by white people. So these histories as written by white people already exist. It's not like we're uncovering something that people didn't know. I sometimes find that incredibly overwhelming mm-hmm. um, to the point I gave a conference paper once at Melbourne University and after the last sentence, and there were three remarkable Aboriginal women in the front row, um, the late Lisa Blair, Destiny Deacon, the artist, and a friend of mine, Kim Kruger. And I remember Destiny Deacon looked at my face and she knew what was going to happen before I did. She goes, oh, no. And then I just broke down and cried. Mm-hmm. And it's having to do that work for weeks and weeks and sort of numbing yourself and then you get this explosion of emotion. I think that that's what happens when people talk about the trauma of these issues, that, that's how it happens when you, you, try to bo- you try to bottle it up. Mm. And then the worst thing is, and I mean it's important to say this, the worst thing is that that happens in front of a group of non-Aboriginal people who don't take responsibility for their history and they see what's happened and then they patronise you and feel sorry for you, but they don't do anything themselves. Mm. So we would still, you know, back in those days at Melbourne Uni, we were always being accused of, oh, we have an emotional investment in the past. And you think, well, what investment do you have? Mm. Yeah, to non-Aboriginal people. But you have a clinical investment or an objective investment but what you have is an investment that has no emotional responsibility. Mm. So a lot of Aboriginal people have to carry the weight of white denial because if they don't remember these histories, no one will. So it is that part of it is does take a toll on you. Mm. 
Yeah, it's a, uh, I can only imagine an incredibly heavy thing to carry. And as you said, it, it is everybody's responsibility to uh, unpack and really know these histories that you're talking about because it is a, a shared history um, and it's incredibly important to know, particularly when we're working against, as you mentioned, this kind of cultural amnesia that has been, um, you know, kind of regurgitated to us through our schooling systems and all of these different places. Um, I'm interested, Tony, you kind of mentioned this before, but obviously you're quite an accomplished writer. As you said, you've just recently released another short um, short story collection, Dark as Last Night. I'm interested in this work that we're talking about, perhaps how you see this project um, speaking with the book that's just come out, or do you see them as quite discrete projects, or how are they in relation to each other in your eyes? Well, it's interesting because there are there are a couple of really um, quite formal links. So the cover of both books um, have been done by a, an Aboriginal woman, um, Jenna Lee, who is a Larrakia woman um, from outside Darwin. So I was in, introduced to her work for University of Queensland Press. Um, she had done a cover for a young. Uh, um, younger Aboriginal poet, her first book ever, Evelyn Araluen, who's mm-hmm. the co-editor of Motherland, and um, so both covers have been done by Jenna. She's just remarkable. Both books have a. So I think I just read this Selma Plum mm-hmm. poem. There's also a Selma Plum story in the in the new story collection, and there are also several stories in the new book which are also referencing in in fictional ways my relationship with my, my my younger brother. I would say, though, that at a wider level, what the relationship is, it's about, I suppose, my yeah, my, my interest has always been in, in making sure that we're an accountable nation in regard, not only to um, Aboriginal people, by the way, but in regard to disadvantage and inequality, so that I see those issues running through my work centrally. Some people who not necessarily don't like my work, but even if they like it, they'll sometimes talk about it as, you know, sort of miserable or, um, you know, depressing or, you know, stories that are always about... I mean, I did get a recent review where the, the reviewer who seemed to like the book, but he wondered why I didn't write more about the suburbs and people watching reality television and streaming and... And I just thought, well, like, I don't know what happens on the other side of Alexander Parade, let alone in the <laughs> suburbs, so... But... That thing where people want you to do something else because they think you're not happy or something. Mm. Yeah, so I think that some people read my book and they think, oh, you must be such an unhappy person. Whereas my view of all of my writing is pretty much this, that um, I don't see it as political in a didactic sense. I don't write to try and, um, you know, brainwash people. I'm just interested in the fact that I live in a country that claims to be something that it's not. Mm. It's not what it claims to be. So... My writing has always been driven by let's look at how a country really is. And in that sense, I like to write about people. I like to write about outsiders. Um, obviously, the the contradiction in that, or in the irony, is that Aboriginal people being classed as outsiders, we're actually right in the centre of our world. But the way that society regards Aboriginal people... Um, yeah, marginalised people, particularly homeless people, people living in disadvantage. Um, these are the people that I want to write about. Mm. Yeah, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with sitting home in a McMansion watching The Voice, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why people would want to do it. You know, I know I I can't think of a good plot to go with that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what that would look like, but hey, I'd read it if you wrote it. Um, (laughs) um, Tony Birch, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, thanks for this marvellous collection. Um, I hope you yeah have a good day. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Bye. Uh, Tony Birch there speaking about his new poetry collection called Whisper Songs. It is out now through the University of Queensland Press. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I was just a country girl who moved to the big city but with nothing but my body, and it all ten toes down and legs up, hamstrings strained and tight from horse riding, no familiar connection or money, climbed that ladder one dick rung at a time. That is an excerpt there from Nothing But My Body. It's a brand new novel from Sydney-based writer Tilly Lawless. It is a novel that explores home, friendship, love, lust and labour, all uh, in the backdrop of the climate anxiety and joining me to speak about it today I do have author Tilly Lawless. Tilly thank you so much for your time today. Thank you it's my pleasure it's nice to be doing something in lockdown. (laughs) Yes of course thank you for um, making time for me I know it must be hard at the moment. Um, Tilly this book has been uh, described as literary autofiction and you know from what I've kind of been reading recently there aren't that many novels that really center you know a young queer sex worker as the main character like I feel like I often perhaps read about those narratives through memoir. I'm interested why you chose fiction as as your mode to write within. Um, Pretty much because what you just said, I feel like uh, marginalised people and like sex workers are relegated to the genre of memoir again and again. Mm. And I feel like... um, I I personally prefer fiction and read a lot more fiction and also I think often when you write something that's more of a novel, people don't feel like they're being lectured to about politics. They can kind of like absorb it and like see it as entertainment. Mm-hmm. And also the books that inspired me in the structure were fiction novels. Mm-hmm. So like, um, yeah, sorry, go. No, it was just, yeah, what, what were they? What kind of um, books were you reading when you were writing this? So, I mean, I wasn't necessarily reading when I reading them as I wrote it, but like they very consciously um, affected the way I wrote it. Was um, Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway? Like I took the structure from that. I really liked the way she followed a woman's train of thoughts across a day as she went about her daily life. And so, like I took that, but made it across eight days. And then also um, John Reshi, a um, uh, Mexican-American gay man who wrote in, like, the 1950s and 60s um, and was a street-based sex worker. He has a book called City of Night, which I really liked because um, it was semi-autobiographical fiction, so same as mine, but um, sex work wasn't the focus of the novel. Like, the real focus was, like, queer community and sex work was kind of just the backdrop in the same way that the cityscapes behind him were the backdrop. So I really tried to um, emulate that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to um, um, kind of unpack in this book. It, as you said, it really does celebrate um, queer friendships and queer family um, 
it also obviously looks at it through the kind of lens of the day-to-day life of this main character. I suppose before we get into some of that, I'd love to talk a little bit about the main character in the book. Um, as you said, it's, it follows her story. She kind of goes through her life. I'm interested, the main character doesn't necessarily have a name. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, the, the main character, who she is, and perhaps that decision to, to leave her without a name? Yeah, so she's like a young a young girl in her twenties in Sydney going through mood fluctuations that any person goes through throughout their life. I deliberately didn't give her a name because I wanted the reader to be fully immersed in it and feel like her thoughts were their thoughts. And I felt by giving her a name, it would back to the fact that it wasn't you, like it wasn't your own mind that you were within. Mm. But unfortunately, I think I kind of failed in that because by not giving her a name, everyone's like, oh, we just assume it's you. So I maybe should have given her a name. But it's all good. No, not at all. I think that's an interesting decision. Um, I suppose let's maybe talk about her a little bit more. You know, as you said, she is, um, you know, a young queer sex worker. There is a lot of discussion about her day-to-day life um, working as, you know, working as a a labourer working in kind of physical labour. There's a um, a line in the book that says, my body has been a tool that I've wielded, but it's also something I just live in every day and I'm comfortable with that and I no longer itch to record in order to assert my personhood in the world, which I love. Can you, I suppose, speak to that idea of this, of this physical labour and um, how she sees her body? Yeah, I think the thing about... I think I think the reason I wanted so much focus on physical labor is because I think often physical labor is, is devalued mm-hmm. in that we see um, labor that you know that's in an office and uses your mind as somehow a superior form of labor and I think that's you know because it's tied to class or a lot a lot of the time and I think it's also because the skill set that comes with physical labor is something that's so muscle memory based and it's built over time that often as a physical laborer, you're not even aware of the skills that you've built with it. And it's not till, well, I know for me personally in sex work, I don't even realize how much skills I've built in the work till I have, for example, someone who's never done a shift come on to shift with me. And I'm like showing them things. And I'm like, wow, I really have this whole wealth of knowledge stored in my body that I don't even realize. And I think so often it's easy for people who don't do physical labor to look overlook physical labor as something that's very easy. Mm. And so I think that's why I really wanted to center the work that the body does and especially the work that the body does in a labor that is also performance-based. Mm. Yeah, there's yeah. this really great part in the book where you were kind of dissecting what that role is. You talk about, um, you know, sex work as being a performer, as being a customer service role, as being a therapist, as being a babysitter, as being a diplomat, as being a hostess, as being an actor. It's like incredible the amount of, as you said, the amount of skill that goes into what it takes to do this kind of um, physical work. I'm also interested in, um, I suppose, unpacking what you mentioned there about class, because I think that there are some really interesting kind of analysis about class within this book. You speak about how when um, the character speaks about when she has clients that are from um, a working class, she feels a little bit more comfortable than perhaps clients mm. from an upper class because they can be quite condescending. Can you speak to me about about that and I suppose the role that class plays throughout this book? 
Yeah, well, I definitely think there's just a clear, when she's speaking about the clients, there's such a clear power dynamic that comes into play when it's like an upper class client with, you know, generally most sex workers are working class in that it is a it is a physical labor that's stigmatized. And so usually people who enter the work need the money. Um, and so it's like often, you know, like migrant women or working class women. And so I think it's an... It's a job, it's really complicated too because it's also a job that often allows women to transcend their class too, you know, like working class women have access to wealth and allows them to reach the stability or like um, cultural um, cultural cachet of being middle class. So I think it's a really, uh, to be honest, same as like a lot of like peripheral jobs um, that are stigmatised, like drug dealing is the same, is often a job that working class people enter to um, climb up the class ladder. So... But also I think that class is so often, I know in queer discourse, I feel like class is something that's often overlooked. Mm. Like we talk we talk a lot about like people are very willing to admit they have white privilege or cis privilege or able-bodied privilege, but people get deeply uncomfortable when it comes to talking about money. And I think that's because a lot of the time people feel like, especially if their money has come from their parents, it, it's not them, you know? But it is, of course, like the the backing of wealth that you have is just as much a part of your privilege as any other part of you. Mm. Um, so I think I, I, I really wanted to centre class as something that tends to be overlooked. And I know one queer theorist, but I can't remember their name, so I'm just going to say what they said, referred to class as the invisible ghost of queer theory. And I think that's like such an interesting way to put it because I think, yeah, it's not people are still very deeply uncomfortable to admit, like, class privilege. Yeah, I think you're incredibly spot on there. Um, you, I think you really unpack a lot of uh, social taboos in a really interesting way throughout this book. Um, something else that comes to mind is um, when, you, oh, when you're writing about how it's wild that it's more socially acceptable for a man to book a sex worker than see a therapist. Mm. Um, and just, yeah. I suppose, the concept of, yeah, what, what we can talk about, what we can do, what is, like, manly enough. Can you speak, yeah. I suppose, a little bit about that masculinity and ideas of masculinity that you explore in the book? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the, I guess, like, the ironic thing, you know, that hashtag that's, like, um, masculinity is so fragile or whatever, and, like, you know, masculinity is, like, all meant to be about strength, but it's actually something that is just, like, undermined so easily. And I think it's... It's, you know, people ask me all the time, like, why are there, why are there more um, women sex workers, like, and why are there more, like, male clients? And it's like, well, one of those reasons is because it's more socially acceptable for men to see sex, sex workers and also men, it's also an economic thing. Men often have more of an expendable income. But, like, the other thing is that I think that sex work has often provided an emotional outlet for men that they're not allowed in their daily life. Mm. Um and it, so it sort of serves a wider societal purpose. Mm. And, like, that's not to say, like, you know, you see some people arguing that, like, oh, rape would go down if we decriminalise sex work everywhere because men with needs would see sex workers. And, like, I don't subscribe to that belief because, obviously, I don't think sex workers should be a vessel for, like, violent and, in, like, sexually inappropriate men. But there is something about the way we have taught men to be that it's okay for them to cry on the shoulder of a prostitute, but it's not okay for them to cry on the shoulder of a friend. Mm -hmm. Like, there's... Yeah. 
that's all. Sorry, I'm still like I'm still like learning and thinking about it as I. As I no, totally, and it's yeah. a it's a huge thing to push up against, and it's just incredibly you know sad when you like when we say that out loud. How is that? It's more socially acceptable to yeah cry on somebody's shoulder that's a sex worker than it is um, somebody you know another man. Um, it is just yeah. inc- incredibly fragile, and it is very sad actually. Um, if you have just joined us, we are chatting with Tilly Lawless all about her brand new novel, Nothing But My Body. Um, Tilly, I'd love to kind of talk a little bit more about um, mental health and kind of the way that that's portrayed um, throughout the book. You know, the the main character does kind of go through, um, you know, uh, ups and downs throughout the book as anybody does. But I think you've kind of touched on this rawness of mental health in in quite an insightful way. Can you talk to me a little bit about, I suppose, the mental health um, journey of this main character and, and what you're trying to achieve through portraying that? Yeah, so what I wanted to show with her largely was that mental health, the idea of being, like, mentally well and unwell, I feel like is not linear. Like, we're always taught, like, oh, you know, you're unwell and then you go to therapy and, like, you get on medication and you you have a better lifestyle and you do these things and, like, you'll inevitably, like, progress. And it's, like, unfortunately it's not like that. Like, Like, sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back and, like, I think sometimes you just have to accept that maybe it'll always just be a cycle of going in and out of um, good and bad periods of mental health. And I think it's less about, like, yeah, this linear progression of getting better but more a learning um, of how to deal with it when it's bad and um, an acceptance and knowledge that when it's bad, it can get good again. Mm. And I think... I think, yeah, so, like, this whole, like, even this, like, idea of, like, it gets better that, like, you know, is used as, like, a mental health slogan. Like, a lot of the time it's like, yeah, it does get better. And then it gets worse. But then it gets better again. Mm. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's very important to kind of move beyond those binary ideas of good and bad, well and sick. Yeah. um, And, yeah, really allowing space for that grey area because I suppose a lot of life does exist within that kind of greyness. Um, Totally. Yeah. Tilly, much of this book is it really feels like this kind of beautiful love letter to um, friendship, to like queer family, to chosen family. I'm interested, can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, that role of chosen family within um, the main character's life and, and why that was so important to kind of celebrate? Yeah, so I think there's a few things here. Firstly, I wrote it during the pandemic when I was, like, separated from so many friends. So I think, like, my like the absence of my friends and, like, missing my friends really bled into the themes of the book. Um, but the other thing, like, I was actually talking about this with someone the other day and I'd... I thought about it in a way I hadn't before, which is I, I'm, I'm estranged from my extended family. And I think that I personally have found um, it, the queer community tends to be quite intergenerational, in that, especially in Sydney. Like, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, 20, 25, 30 years older than me, um, which I don't notice so much in my straight, like my straight friends in their world, they tend to only really have friends who are their contemporaries of age. I notice the queer world is a lot more mixed. And I have wondered if I've sought out those intergenerational friendships because I don't have um, intergenerational friendships in my family. So it's like replaced 
replace that need. And I know people talk about that a, that a lot, you know, this idea of, like, chosen families with queers ca- came from the fact that a lot of queers were, like, cast out from their families and had to create new families. But it was the it was the fact that I was like, oh, I'm not close to any aunts or uncles. And in a lot of people's lives, like, aunts and uncles are, like, a really important tie to a generation that's not your own. And I was like, I feel like queer community fills that intergenerational need. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That kind of, um, I suppose, leads me to think about something else that I feel like is is kind of an interesting question that's come up throughout the book, which is, I, I suppose, like a, an idea of what home is and who home is. And I think that that mm. comes across in the ways in which, um, you know, this main character kind of um, has these relationships with the, the close people in their life. But it, I think it's also interesting because the main character obviously travels from, you know, Sydney to uh, rural um, New South Wales to, uh, you know, London. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, those decisions to kind of move um, the main character around and, and what that really means for, for her concept of, um, of home and, and where that is? Totally. Well, I partly moved her around just because I wanted every single chapter to have a completely different mood, like not just with the emotion, but like with the surroundings. So that's why, for example, she also goes to a brothel in Orange and why she's also in Berlin. Like I wanted there to be yeah, a different sense. I wanted each chapter to more be a part, like a standalone part. Um, so that's why I did that. But also in terms of home, I feel like it's really home is such an interesting thing because I feel like you can have multiple homes in that like when I'm when I'm in Sydney I often miss Bellingen and when I'm in Bellingen I miss Sydney and it's like are you privileged for having multiple homes or is it or does it suck because every time you're in one place you're missing another place Mm -hmm. um but yeah I think I think also in this generation of like a lot of a lot of young people are like locked out of the housing market I think travel has replaced home ownership for a lot of us mm-hmm. and so that was also the idea of also having a portable home that is based around community rather than a home that you own is something that I wanted to focus on in her. Mm. Yeah it's interesting that that kind of role that travel plays I suppose now because even in the book you kind of the main character is coming up against the realities of COVID and you know you've you've written in some really kind of contemporary issues that we are facing it feels so relevant. Um, I'm interested, I suppose, why you really wanted to, you know, to put in, um, you know, you you spoke about what it was like for her at the start of um, when COVID was happening, we didn't know what it was. And also, Mm. you know, the bushfires and in so many ways, it is like very specifically um, a story that has come from this country that is about what's happening. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, those the the drive to to put those really um, kind of contemporary markers in in this story. Well, firstly, I wanted to make it very specifically Australian um, because I kind of resent that certain cities in the world are seen as international cities, like New York and London, and we can read books with like very specific details about the streets in those places, and that's seen as um, and people accept that. But when you make something specifically Australian, it's seen as parochial and not international. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel like Sydney is never seen as an international city in the way some of those other cities are. So I really was reacting to that in making it, like, very, very Australian. And, you know, that's, to be honest, has worked against it in in some instances in terms of being picked up for, like, um, 
international publishing, for example. Like, it's seen as, like, quite uh, so Australian that it's alienating to other readers. But, like, I wanted to do that because I'm so used to being the outside, reading about New York and London or whatever, and it's like, how come it's okay for us to be the outsider on that and it's not okay for people in the Northern Hemisphere to be outsiders and reading about our country, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that was, yeah, that was very deliberate. And then the, to be honest, the coronavirus thing, the focus on that just happened organically because I started writing the book when lockdown happened and at the time I was plotting out the structure of the days and I was thinking, oh, what am I going to make, what am I going to focus the last days on? Because as I said, I wanted a different mood for every day and when the pandemic happened, that was just like a very obvious, um, significant event to put in there because I wanted... You know, I wanted to show the way in which your, like, internal world is impacted by the external world. So I needed huge things to almost mirror and and trigger the huge things within herself, if that mm. makes sense. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you captured that perfectly. I, I imagine it would be very hard to still be in lockdown whilst you're kind of putting this book out when that was when you, where you kind of started the book. So, um, but hopefully you, yeah. can, <laughs> you can get out soon. Um, Tilly, it's been an absolute pleasure to read your work and to chat to you this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That was fun. Your questions were great, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Tilly Lawless there talking all about her brand new novel. It's called Nothing But My Body and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. You're on Triple R. It's almost time for me to get on out of here. I do want to say a big thank you to my guests that joined me this afternoon, Uncle Tony Burt, to chat all about his new poetry collection, Whisper Songs, and just now Tilly Lawless to talk about her brand new novel, Nothing But My Body. Both incredible books. Uh, if you're looking for some reading to do, highly recommend checking them out. Uh, Uncle Tony Birch's book is out through UQP and Tilly Lawless is out through Alan and Unwin. Hope you can keep it locked to Triple R. I'll be back with you next Wednesday from one o'clock. Until then, have yourselves a great day. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.